The Gospels can't be trusted. The supposed accounts of Jesus' life were written hundreds of years after the events they describe. How would you respond to this objection? That is what we are talking about today. This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedekes. I'm a former pastor and missionary, and now I'm the executive director of the Think Institute. And I used to defend my faith in the completely wrong way. And then God changed my attitude and my approach. And now I help believers to talk about their faith with confidence and to answer the world's questions from the Bible. Let's start with this. Why does this challenge matter to us? This question of when the Gospels were actually written. It matters because it implies that the accounts in the New Testament can't be trusted. Would you trust someone who was writing your biography 300 years from now with no firsthand accounts? If the Gospels were written hundreds of years after Jesus Christ, we would be in a similar situation to you trying to write a biography of George Washington's next door neighbor today without any firsthand sources without any firsthand eyewitness accounts. Could you accurately retell the life of George Washington's neighbor today? Probably not. You'd have to make up a lot of it. And so in the same way, if the Gospels were written hundreds of years after Jesus, that would really throw their trustworthiness, their reliability, into some serious question. It would have major implications for whether or not we can trust the Gospels and the Gospel, the actual good news of Jesus Christ. And since the gospel is the answer to humanity's biggest problem, which is sin, this has implications for all of humanity. It has implications for eternal life, for our ability to know God through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. So I want to know, have you ever encountered this objection? If not, you will. And if not you, your kids will and your wife will. The world is asking this question. And if you are able to answer it, it's going to help you build a legacy in your family, in your church, in your local area. We want our apologetics to serve our evangelism, and knowing how to answer this can help you with your evangelism. And Lord willing, you'll see Jesus change lives as you share your faith, and as that sharing of your faith is buttressed by how you answer this question. So this is a very big deal. Today, we're going to answer the following three questions. Why is it inconsistent for a skeptic to make historical objections in the first place? We're going to perform a reductio ad absurdum on the non-Christian worldview. How does the Bible give the categories needed to make historical objections in the first place? And then how do we know that the Gospels were written early? We will be examining the evidence. We'll be looking at some scholarly sources as well as some popular sources. If you want more resources like this, if you're intrigued by this topic, and you want to talk about it more with other like-minded individuals who are on the exact same journey that you're on to become the worldview leader that your family and your church need, you need to know about our online community. This is the community with over 760 others now who are on the same journey. And every single day, we're finding answers to important questions, sharing resources, and stuff that's going to help you live out God's unique calling on your life as a worldview leader. I'm going to tell you how to get access to that at the end of this talk. So now let's jump in. All right, first things first. When you encounter this challenge, beware of your first response. Don't just immediately do what I want to do, which is just jump right into the evidence. I share all the time how I used to defend my faith in the wrong way until God changed 
my attitude and my approach, I will say changing my attitude and my approach affected how I answer questions like this. I don't just jump right into giving the evidence right now. So you have to beware of your first response. Don't start slinging evidence right away. We have to defend God's truth, God's way. And what we're going to do is we're going to use a three-step presuppositional method. All right, let's start with step one. Now, step one in your apologetic method, the way I teach it, is you want to reduce the unbelieving position to absurdity. That's not like a rhetorical device. This is a, a technical philosophical approach, an, an apologetic approach, wherein you expose, first of all, you have to find and then expose the internal contradiction in the non-Christian position that actually makes the fact that they're bringing up this objection incoherent. We're going to reduce the unbiblical position to absurdity. The Latin phrase that we use for this is reductio ad absurdum. How do we perform this reductio ad absurdum? It starts by clarifying your discussion partner's position. Find out what does your friend really mean? You want to respond accurately. That's an act of love to respond to someone act accurately. And as Christians, we need to love our neighbor, don't we? And that includes our opponents. Now, you need to accurately understand what your opponent means. So you're going to ask some questions. Here are some great questions that you should have in your back pocket at all times when you're having conversations like this. Questions like, what do you mean by that? Is that absolutely true? By what standard? How do you know that? And then finally, this is really an excellent one when you're, when you're handling this objection. It's, so what? Okay, if someone says, the Gospels were written hundreds of years after Jesus lived. You just say, so what? Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter to you. I'm asking you to ask them why that is so important to them. If their objection is true, if it holds water, so what? Why does that matter? What we're going to do here is then we're going to identify the contradiction. We've clarified now, based on how they respond, what their objection is, and then we're going to find the internal conflict in the skeptical worldview. How do we do that? Well, every worldview starts with certain assumptions, and every objection like this, you know, the Bible was written hundreds of years after the time of Christ. There are certain assumptions that go into making that objection. The unbeliever has some beliefs here, so we're going to try to uncover what he's working with. He's got certain principles by which he thinks we may judge the historical trustworthiness of a document. In this case, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what are those principles? One is this. A historical account is more trustworthy if it is written earlier and by eyewitnesses. You know, if he doesn't believe that, then there really is no objection, is there? He's saying the Gospels were written later and not by eyewitnesses thereby implying that the Gospels are not trustworthy. The principle there is a historical account, like the Gospels, would be more trustworthy if it is written earlier and by eyewitnesses. Okay, that's something that he's assuming. Does that make sense? The second principle is this. It is possible to know the past. It's possible to study history and to learn what happened. Now, this is like so basic that you almost hesitate to even say it and make it explicit. We all assume this, don't we? But the skeptic has to assume it, and he has to assume it based on 
his worldview. In fact, both of these assumptions must be made within the context of his skeptical worldview. So what we're going to do now then is we're going to expose the contradiction that is inherent in his worldview, and we're going to do that with questions. And let me give you three questions. Okay, question one, without God, why think that eyewitness testimony or early writing is better, more reliable? Think about that. Is this a rule about the way things work? Where would a rule like that come from? Why would we think that rules like this would remain true and consistent over time? For all you know, if we live in a random universe guided by random chance, the rules could be changing all the time, right? Is this a random universe? If the skeptic says yes, then why does he or she think that there are these immutable, unchanging rules that govern the way we study history? In a random universe, that actually makes no sense. There is no basis for that. The same would be true if he believed in a capricious God. The same would be true if he believed in a God that had not revealed himself in a certain way. Why would we think that we could know anything about this God or that this God is holding the universe together in such a way that rules about historical study remain true over time? Rules need a rule giver. And for a rule to be consistent, the rule giver needs to be consistent. Again, some of this is so common sense, but we have to make these things explicit because we're trying to uncover the contradiction. Here's another question. Without God, why think that the past can be known at all? How do we even know that there is a past? How do we know that you didn't just pop into existence five minutes ago? That's kind of weird, right? But it's actually a pretty good question. If you don't believe that there is someone who can give you certain knowledge about the past, why would you think that there is anything that can be known about the past at all, even that the past existed? Without God's authoritative revelation, and without God having spoken to us in a way that we can be certain about, telling us for certain that there is a world out there and a timeline of history, why would you believe that you can know anything about the past with even 1% of certainty. And you can't just say, well, because we've always been able to learn things about the past. Really? Isn't that a reference to the past? How do you know that that's true? Without God, here's another question. Without God, why assume that the world is consistent anyway? If there are rules that govern how we study history, why assume that those rules are the same today as they would have been 1,700, 1,800, 1,900, 2,000 years ago, whenever the Gospels were written? See, maybe today the best way to establish the credibility of a document is for it to be written early and by eyewitnesses, but maybe that wasn't true 2,000 years ago. Now, I'm not saying that it wasn't. I'm saying if you don't believe in God, why would you think that those rules are steady and consistent over time? And it seems silly because no one believes that. The atheist doesn't believe that. But what I'm saying is the atheist has no reason for not believing that without appealing to some immutable rule that governs the universe. And then we're back to where did that rule come from? Why, is it, why does it exist? So let's bring this home then. The doubting position, the, the position of the skeptic, the non-Christian position, relies on these assumptions and these principles that make no sense without the triune God of Scripture. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. But given his atheism, all the pieces don't fit together. At best, 
he can appeal to the idea, well, everyone just knows this. But that's not an argument. That's an argumentum ad populum. It's, we all agree with this. Well, that's not how you figure out truth. You don't, truth is not determined by popular vote. Stating that everyone knows this, supposedly, is not the same as explaining why it is actually the case. So the skeptic ultimately has no reason for believing what he believes about being able to study history or even that it's possible to know anything about the, his, about the history of the world or, or the past at all. So it's really absurd for the non-Christian to be making this argument. Now, let's move on to step two. In step one, we reduced the unbelieving position to absurdity. Now, step two, we're going to ask this question, how does the Bible give the categories that are needed for historical objections? In other words, atheism can't make sense of the objection in the first place, but the Bible can. So as Christians, what we're going to see is these questions about history, they really matter to us. And I'm going to show you why that is. We've deconstructed the skeptical position. Now we're going to build the house of the Christian worldview. Or really what we're going to do is that we're going to go down into the basement and we're going to look around at the foundation and at the walls. And we're going to say, look at this foundation. This house is well supported. This house can stand whatever storms might beat against it. This is called doing an internal critique. An internal critique is where you seek to falsify or to demonstrate a discontinuity with an idea by hypothetically and comprehensively assuming its truth in order to prove some internal inconsistency or contradiction with it. In other words, we're inviting the unbeliever into our worldview for the sake of argument in order to see if all the parts actually agree with one another. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to consider what two objections or what conditions would be necessary in order for this objection to stick. In other words, what would have to be true in order for this objection to, to hurt our Christian worldview? Here are two principles, and they're, and they're, they're going to sound very familiar because I just mentioned them a few minutes ago. One, a historical account is more trustworthy if it is written earlier and by eyewitnesses. That has to be true in order for this objection to stick, in order for it to hurt. Second assumption, it is possible to know the past. It is possible to study history and to learn what happened in the past. Unless these two things are true, the objection doesn't matter. If it's not true that a historical document is more reliable if it's written early and by eyewitnesses, then there is no objection. If it's not true that it's possible to know the past and to study history and to learn what happened, then this objection doesn't matter. It has no teeth. So what we're going to do is we're going to reveal how the biblical worldview actually gives the basis for those two principles anyway. Let's look at the first principle. A historical account is more likely to be true if it's written earlier and by eyewitnesses. Does the Bible actually support this claim? See, as Christians, everything that we believe needs to be testable by Scripture. So if we believe this, which we do, then we need to be able to show why the Bible actually teaches this. Well, let's look at a few scripture passages, and I've got three of them for you. Luke 1, 1 through 3. This is the intro to Luke's gospel. We're going to talk a lot about Luke's gospel today. 
Here's what it says. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. Now, in the rest of these verses, it's actually Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke mentions eyewitnesses. He mentions having carefully investigated everything from the very first. There's an allusion to early writing and early research. And his goal is that the reader would know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So the Bible is teaching these principles, these two assumptions that we need to make in order for this objection to stick. Then we go down to John 19.35. Here's what it says. He who saw this has testified, and he knows he is telling the truth. Eyewitness testimony leads to knowledge. And then we skip ahead in our Bibles to 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Listen to the words. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but listen to the words that John uses in this introduction to his first epistle. Heard, observed, touch, seen, testify, seen, heard, declare to you. These are all words that that signify the importance of eyewitness, firsthand experience. The gospel writers positively mention how they witnessed the events that they described, and they witnessed them firsthand or interviewed those who had seen them firsthand, who had seen these things. So what does this all mean? Well, these passages are included in the Bible. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's word and that God therefore wanted us to take these passages very seriously, literally as gospel truth. So God wants us to value eyewitness testimony and research. Scripture supports the importance of eyewitness testimony and early authorship. Do you see how the Bible actually supports and gives the basis for this first principle? Let's move on to the second principle, that the past can be known. It's possible to study the past and learn what happened. Does the Bible teach this principle? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Check this out. Deuteronomy 32.7 says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of past generations. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders and they will teach you. What does that imply? It implies it's possible to know things about the past. Similarly, Psalm 78, 3 and 4. In, in Psalm 78, it uses words like this. Our ancestors have passed down to us. We will not hide them from their children, but will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might, and the wondrous works he has performed. What is that describing? It's describing the past. Do you see? It's describing the things that happened in the past. It's saying it's possible to know them. It's possible to pass them down from one generation to the next. And then finally, Romans 15, 4, one of my favorite scripture verses. It says, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. Now, what does that mean? It means we can know what was written in the past and we can know about the things that they describe. And we can actually be instructed by them. We can gain wisdom and knowledge and understanding about life and about what God requires of us based on what was written down in the past. So what does all this mean? Again, God wanted these passages to be in the Bible. He wants us to take them seriously and to believe that we can know things about the past. Does that make sense? I also want to just let you know that we are in the middle of our end-of-year campaign right now. It's called Taking Every Thought Captive. And you can partner with us by going to the Think dot institute slash partner and support the work of the think institute all right now we have 
gone through our first step, which is the reductio ad absurdum. We reduced the unbelieving argument to absurdity. We are halfway through step two. The first half of step two is where you show that the Bible provides the categories needed to even make the objection. But the second half of step two, this is it's what I consider the fun part. Reductio is pretty fun too, but this is where we really get into evidence. I am a hardcore presuppositionalist. I love presuppositional apologetics, but I also love evidence. In fact, I love evidence because I'm a presupper. I think that evidence and presuppositionalism go hand in hand. I think that you can present evidence in a presuppositional way. I think you must. So let's get into the evidence. How do we know that the Gospels were written early? Do you want to know the evidence? Let me share it with you. We're going to look at a ton of evidence here. There is abundant, good evidence that the New Testament was written early. Now, when you give this evidence, do not expect your friend, your skeptical friend, to instantly drop to his knees and give glory to Jesus Christ. Now, that would be wonderful. It certainly can happen. They may perhaps be given repentance and knowledge. They may per perhaps come to repentance and knowledge of the truth, according to 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. But your goal here is not to convince them with your superior evidentiary argumentation. Your goal here is to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And Jesus Christ is your hope. So you are vindicating the truth, whether or not your unbelieving discussion partner recognizes that. I just want to put that disclaimer out there now. All right, let's start by establishing the fact that Acts was written between 60 and 62 AD. Now you might say, well, we're not talking about Acts. We're talking about the Gospels, right? Well, yes. But you're going to see that once we've established when Acts was written, then we're going to, that'll take us a long way towards determining when the Gospels were also written. All right, so hang with me here. The Pharisees are portrayed sympathetically in the book of Acts. That's weird, right? We never think of the Pharisees as being portrayed as like getting something right. The reason why is because our view of the Pharisees often comes from the Gospels. And later in the first century, there was this Pharisaic revival that was going to lead to a new phase of conflict with Christianity. We learn this from a scholar named Hemer, could be Hamer, and another one named Norman Geisler. The Pharisees are portrayed sympathetically. Okay, why does that matter? If Acts were written after 100 AD, we would expect to see a much more negative portrayal of the Pharisees, because by that point, there was this Pharisaic revival, and they came into much starker conflict with the budding and burgeoning Christian church. And you can read Acts 5.33, Acts 15.5, and Acts 23.6 and following to find these, at the very worst, neutral and at best, even positive portrayals of the Pharisees. That's the first point of evidence that Acts were written earlier. Another point deals with another group not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. The Sadducees were different than the Pharisees. They did not believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. And so because of all of this, it gave them a very bleak outlook on life. 
they were very sad. You see, they were very sad. You see, you see that? You see what I did there? Dad joke. Sadducees are portrayed as very prominent and authoritative in the book of Acts. However, their influence died out after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. What that means is that Luke was intimately aware of the role that this group played in the pre-70 AD world, and that is good evidence that Luke wrote his book prior to 70 AD. Next piece of evidence, the New Testament fails to describe the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD was an event so cataclysmic, so apocalyptic, so catastrophic to the Jewish people, it surely would have been mentioned in the book of Acts if the book of Acts were written after 70 AD. The fact that it is not is a strong indicator that Acts was written prior to that date. Acts and the other books of the New Testament failed to describe the events of 66 AD. What happened in 66? Roman armies besieged Jerusalem for three years prior to destroying the temple. That siege is not mentioned in the book of Acts, nor is the deterioration of relations between the Jewish people and the Romans. So, Acts must have been written prior to 66 AD. Furthermore, Acts says nothing about the breaking down of relations between Rome and Christians. Now, Nero started to strongly persecute the Christian church in 64 AD. 64 AD was a really bad year to be a Christian from a persecution standpoint. And after that, and during that time, and in subsequent years, there was very badly deteriorating relations between Christians and Imperial Rome. This is not mentioned in Acts, indicating that Acts was written prior to that time. Let's keep going. Another piece of evidence, and by my count, this is the sixth piece of evidence. Acts is filled with minor specific details of what life was like in the Roman Empire. The Julio-Claudian era stretched from 31 BC to 68 AD. It is very unlikely that Luke would have had such intimate knowledge and just be able to so readily describe what life was like in that period, if he wasn't living during that period and writing during that period. Next piece of evidence. The style of Acts reflects a, a feeling of confidence. There's a certain triumphalism as the church is spreading. 3,000 were added to their number. 5,000 were added to their number. That sort of triumphalism would have very much waned and seemed very out of place after the events of 64 AD and stretching on into the late 60s. Why? Because the church at that point began to be beleaguered. They were attacked. They were far from triumphalistic. Yes, the church still continued to spread. But if the book of Acts were written after Nero's persecution and after the Roman-Jewish War, we wouldn't expect to find that in a document written after those years. All right, let's keep going. The terminology used in Acts is typical of an earlier period. Alfred Harnack cites the Christian's use of terms like ha Christos to mean the Messiah rather than as a proper name for Jesus. Later on in later Christian writings, ha Christos, which means the Christ, was used to refer to Jesus as Jesus, like you might refer to me as Sedecase. 
Now, there's a reason why some people think that Jesus's last name is Christ. Like Jesus was born to, you know, Mary and Joseph Christ. Well, he, of course he wasn't. People think that though, because sometimes in scripture, it talks about Jesus. You know, it says it, it uses Christ almost as his name. But in the book of Acts, Ha Christos is used as more of a title than a name. So that indicates that it was written during that period, that early, very early period. Further, in Acts, Luke says nothing about the deaths of Paul and Peter. Now, we know from Eusebius, who is known as the father of Christian history, and Fox, the author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, following Eusebius, that Paul was killed in Rome during the Neuronic wave of persecution in 64 AD. Neuronic means of Nero. Peter was also killed at about that time, or possibly shortly thereafter in 65 AD, as J. Warner Wallace points out in a very helpful article on his website, as well as there's an article on the website Crosswalk, which you can link to. And yes, these are popular sources, but they're drawing off of scholars who have done this research. The fact that Peter and Paul, their deaths are not mentioned in the book of Acts, that is strong evidence that Acts was written prior to their deaths. The author of Acts, Luke, has no problem mentioning the deaths of prominent figures in the church. Matter of fact, James's death, not the brother of Jesus, but the other one of the other Jameses, he is mentioned as, uh, as uh, being killed. Stephen is mentioned that he is killed. And so Luke has no problem mentioning the deaths of early church leaders. So the idea that Luke doesn't mention their deaths, that is significant. Here's another piece of evidence for you. Acts seems to be written prior to Peter's arrival in Rome. If Peter died in 64 or 65 AD, as it seems he did, this would entail that Peter arrived in Rome prior to that, which means that Acts would have been written prior to that. So now we're pushing the date back. It was written before 64 or 65 AD. Furthermore, Acts says nothing about the death of James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, I actually looked up the Antiquities of the Jews for this. He says that James was killed by the Sanhedrin under the procuratorship of Albinus in around 62 AD, as we know when, when, that, when that was. Now, James apparently hadn't been killed when Acts was written, which pushes the writing of Acts earlier than 62 AD. Okay, so we're getting earlier and earlier and earlier. Then Acts ends abruptly and unexpectedly with events that, that took place in the very early 60s AD. There's really no resolution. Norm Geisler says that the book ends with vivid immediacy. There's not the kind of resolution that we would expect if the book were written years after the events leading up to 62 AD. So that is very interesting. And it is a strong indicator that Acts was written prior to 62 AD. So Acts was written early. What does that mean about the Gospels? All right, Luke's Gospel predates, predates the book of Acts. And that is a fact. Jack, from the introduction to Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts, it is clear that Luke wrote his Gospel before he wrote Acts. The author mentions his former book, which fits the description of one of the Gospels. Norman Geisler says this. He says, the destiny, Theophilus, style, and vocabulary of the two books betray a common author. 
Roman historian Colin Hamer has provided powerful evidence that Acts was written between AD 60 and 62. Okay, good. So if Acts was written between 60 and 62, which we just established above, then Luke was written earlier than that, which is uh, very interesting. It's going to have implications for the other Gospels, because right now you might be thinking, we're just talking about Acts in one of the Gospels. What about all four of the Gospels? We're going to get to that. We're going to explain how once you establish Acts, then you establish Luke, the other Gospels fall right into line. It's amazing when you see it. All right, let's keep going here. Paul quoted Luke's Gospel in his letter to Timothy. You do not need to be a textual critic or a, a Bible scholar to see this. Paul wrote 1 Timothy after the events in Acts between his first and second stints in prison. Wallace, J. Warner Wallace, writes this. Paul appeared to be aware of Luke's gospel and wrote as though it was common knowledge in about 63 to 64 when Paul penned his first letter to Timothy. All right, end quote. Specifically, Paul calls Jesus's quote in Luke 10, verse 7, scriptured. That's amazing. Paul actually appeals to a quote from Jesus and calls it scripture. That quote from Jesus is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So Paul was familiar with Luke's gospel, and he was familiar enough to consider it canonical. That is amazing. Did you know that? Paul considered Luke's gospel to be canonical by 63 to 64 AD. That's amazing. That means Luke's gospel must have been written not only earlier, but early enough that its contents had become widespread knowledge. And the fact that it was canon had become widespread knowledge because Paul doesn't even establish the fact. He doesn't even defend the fact that it is uh, scripture. He just refers to it as scripture. Okay, next, Paul quotes Luke's gospel in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25. If you're a pastor, you probably know this passage. You've probably cited this passage. If you go to church uh, last Sunday, if you went to church, you probably heard your pastor, if, they're, if they celebrated the Lord's Supper, he probably quoted from 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Lord's Supper passage, and it's a reference to Luke 22, 19, and 20. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 10 years before he wrote 1 Timothy. Now we're pushing the date back to about 55 AD. This means that Luke's gospel must have been written already by the early 50s AD. Isn't that amazing? Okay, keep going. All this means that Luke was written less than 30 years, or about 30 years, since the death of Jesus. This is contemporary to the generation who witnessed the events of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Exactly what Luke claims in the prologue to his gospel. That's what Geisler says, and that's what I agree with. In the prologue to Luke's gospel, Luke says that he researched and investigated speaking to eyewitnesses. Well, the historical facts bear that out. Luke was not lying to us. He was telling the truth. That is amazing. What about the other gospels? What about Matthew? What about Mark? Well, Matthew, Mark, and John give the same details with some variations and nuances in perspective. And John gives a lot more details, but they give, they tell the same story as Luke. There's no vast variations. There's no contradictions between Luke and the other gospels. Luke also 
quoted Mark and Matthew repeatedly. Now, Luke was not an eyewitness, but Luke described himself as a historian. He collected the statements from the eyewitnesses who had seen the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in real time. So Luke actually included 350 verses from Mark and 250 verses from Matthew in his gospel. Now, when I started researching this, I had no idea that the quantity of verses cited by Luke was that high. What that means is that Mark's gospel and very probably Matthew's gospel had to have been written before the early 50s AD, because that's when Luke's gospel was written. And if Luke is citing that many verses from Mark and Matthew, they must have been written earlier. So I told you the other Gospels are going to fall right in line once we establish Luke. Now, some scholars believe that Matthew's Gospel was written as early as 10 to 12 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. It seems that Matthew first wrote his Gospel for a Jewish audience. He likely wrote it in Aramaic. Now, if you've studied the Gospel of Matthew, you've probably seen this, you've probably heard this. Matthew has a strong Jewish flavor. He appeals to Old Testament prophecy that the Jewish people would have been familiar with. And there are these phrases in Matthew that we know have a very Aramaic flavor to them as well. They were idioms and phrases that the Jewish people were using at that time. It seems as though they've been translated into Greek from Aramaic. Now, we can't prove that, but it seems likely. What that means, if that's true, and I don't hang too much weight on this, but if it were true, then that would mean that Matthew's gospel had to have been around for long enough to have been written in Aramaic and then translated into Greek. Now, just a quick side note, that doesn't mean that I think that what we have is not authentic or is not what God wanted us to have. God wanted us to have Matthew's gospel in Greek, and we do have it in Greek. We know what the original said. Thank you, textual critics. But it's quite intriguing to think that there could have been an earlier iteration of Matthew's gospel that was originally written in Aramaic. That would push the writing of Matthew's gospel way earlier. Now, this view that Matthew was actually originally written in Aramaic, this is not a fringe view. It seems to have been held by church fathers like Irenaeus, Origen, and Eusebius, who I mentioned earlier. Amazingly, now, this is coming from the website gotquestions.org, a very popular website. I highly recommend it. Not a scholarly source, but just a good practical source for answers. They cite Eusebius as, as believing that Matthew wrote his gospel before he left Israel to preach in other lands, which Eusebius says happened about 12 years after the death of Christ. Wow. That means that some scholars believe that this would place the writing of Matthew as early as, get this, 40 to 45 AD, that is incredibly early. We're talking like like early, early, early testimony to what happened in the life of Jesus Christ. That's incredible. I'm, I'm just floored by that. One more just little tidbit I have to mention to you because this is really interesting. According to Bill Pratt, who writes for the website Tough Questions Answered. The British New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham has done some exhaustive work correlating New Testament names 
with the list of 3,000 names compiled by other historians, someone named Eilin. And here's what he concluded. The names in the Gospels correspond perfectly to those of the Palestinian Jews of the first century. The Gospels were nearly perfect in how they captured the frequency of names among the Palestinian Jews of that time. For example, when you take a list of the 10 most popular names of Jewish people living in Palestine, Israel, Judea, during the era when Jesus is purported to have lived, you take the top 10, one, two, three, all the way down to 10. The top 10 names in the Gospels line up perfectly, rank for rank, with the top 10 most popular names of Jewish people at large from other historical documents who were living at that time. That's extraordinary. And you might say, okay, sure, those were probably just popular names. Maybe they were written around that time, but they could have been written somewhere else. Au contraire. By contrast, if you examine, this is coming from Bauckham, if you examine the most popular Jewish names in a different region, such as Egypt at that time, the list is dramatically different. The pattern of names, Balkum says, does not match what we know the pattern to be in Palestine. So it couldn't have been that someone was writing at the same time even, but in a different location. We're talking about someone who was writing at that time in that location. Now, could they have guessed could someone have been writing 300 years later, 200 years later, and just have guessed what the names would have been during that time? Well, if you examine the names that appear in the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, you discover that the frequency and the proportion of names in these writings do not match what we know to be true about the names from the land and time of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that the Gnostic Gospels do not have the ring of authenticity with regard to the personal names and are rightly called into question. That is not the case for the Gospels that we have in our Bible. They are authentic. They have the names that we know were around during that time. There would have been no time for mythological embellishment of the records. They must be accepted as historical. Get this. No first century date allows time for myths or legends to creep into the stories about Jesus. Legend development takes at least two full generations, according to A.N. Sherwin-White. So, if someone were to object, okay, fine, the Gospels were written early, but they were still filled with legends. People don't walk on water. Men don't rise from the dead. Guess what? They're written so early, there was no time for legends to develop. All right, now, J. Warner Wallace concludes in his article, the evidence from history and the texts themselves most reasonably points to the early authorship of the Gospels. The early, This early dating is helpful in assessing their truth status. If the Gospels were written this early, in the very region where the events took place, it would have been difficult for them to include obvious lies, given that they would have been written to people who were alive during the events recorded in the New Testament. These people would have been available to vet the content of the Gospels and call them out as lies if they contained fallacious information. The early dating of the Gospels is an important factor for determining their reliability. As a presuppositionalist, I say 
when we start with the biblical worldview, we get evidence in the first place. But as Christians who start with the assumption that the Gospels are true, we constantly find that assumption verified and corroborated through historical inquiry and research, which is very encouraging. It is very confirmational. So the Gospels stand up to historical scrutiny. This is important to us as Christians. Our worldview, we have seen, requires us to take history seriously. This is in contrast to the non-Christian worldview, the godless worldview, which actually has no basis for thinking that the past can be known at all, or that there are immutable, that means unchanging, universal objective laws governing how we study history. In a random chance universe, it doesn't matter. It's pointless to imagine that there are such rules. Okay, so I've taken you now through step one, that's the reductio ad absurdum, reducing the unbelieving position to absurdity, and step two, parts one and parts two. We've shown that the Bible provides the criteria needed for historical research, and we've shown that the Bible meets the criteria for historical study. Now let's go to step three. This is the most important because apologetics must serve evangelism. Now, we're ready to make our evangelistic appeal. This is step three. And I'd be curious to know, how would you pivot to the gospel here? What would you say to say, in light of this now gospel, how would you do it? We may say something like, you may not be convinced, but you've seen that your worldview cannot account for principles of evidence, historical study, or consistency in the world and the rules governing it, or its principles. The biblical worldview accounts for all of these, and it violates none of them. Your unbelief is arbitrary, and rejecting God, suppressing the truth about God is sin, according to Romans 1, 18 through 24. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He died for sinners like you and me. He was buried and rose again. And now he rules as king over this universe, over you and me. And he promises to forgive everyone of all their sins who receives him as savior and as Lord. Does that make sense? If it does, man, you're off to the races. If not, why not? We might have to go back to square one. <laughs> We might have to, or we might have to shake the dust of this conversation from our feet, but at least we'll know what we're dealing with, and at least we'll have gotten to the gospel. So we have now followed a three-step method for answering this challenge. We exposed the inherent conflict in the skeptical position. We revealed how the biblical worldview provides the criteria needed for the argument to make sense. And we showed how the Gospels stand up to those criteria very well. We then pivoted to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Focus on getting to the Gospel. The Gospel is the true solution to your friend's biggest problem. The biggest problem this person faces is not a lack of historical evidence. It is sin. Now, when you make your case this way, you will be showing that the Bible, believing the Bible, is the prerequisite for even thinking that historical inquiry is possible. That will evaporate the objection that the Bible was written centuries after the events it describes. Here's the thing to remember. It might not convince the person that you're speaking to. Look, only the Holy Spirit can convince a person that Jesus is Lord and 
can motivate a person to the point of repenting and, and coming to the knowledge of the truth. But being able to defend your faith in this way will go a long way towards giving a reasoned defense for the hope that you have within you. First Peter 3, 15 through 17. This objection is important. Knowing how to answer it can go a long way towards building a Christian worldview legacy in your family, at work, and in your local area. As far as recommended resources, I have an article up on coldcasechristianity.com. It's called, Should We, Quote, Waste Our Time, End Quote, Preparing to Defend Our Faith. You can read that. Jay Warner Wallace's article is very accessible. It's called, Why I Know the Gospels Were Written Early. And that is at coldcasechristianity.com. Norman Geisler's article is called, The Dating of the New Testament. You can find that at bethinking.org. And then you can also look up the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics by Norman L. Geisler, pages 37 to 41. And you'll get this same article, I believe, is in there. Uh, you can look up C.J. Hamer's, that's Hamer, H-E-M-E-R. The book is called The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. I have not read it, but it was referenced in the resources that I looked up. And also, you might want to look into the work of British New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, who has done exhaustive work in this field. So, are you ready to become the worldview leader that your family and church need? It is now time for you to join our free community of over 750 others who are getting equipped to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Join the Think Squad to get access to the group. All you have to do is open up your Facebook app, search for Think Squad, T H I N K S Q U A D. Answer the short membership questions. That's all it takes. Thank you for listening to this special presentation. This has been a production of the Think Institute. It was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedicase, and we equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And we are based by God's grace.